Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we're thrilled to bring you a very interesting conversation with Michael Sigemore, co-founder of Broadhaven Ventures and host of the Alternatives Goes mainstream podcast and blog. Broadhaven is fintech focused and has invested in several platforms that make alternatives more accessible, including Republic, PartyRamp, iCapital, and Alt. We're also thrilled to have them as investors for our startup, Allocate. Michael is also a venture partner at Goodwater Capital, one of the top global consumer-focused venture capital platforms in the world with over $2 billion in assets under management. During our chat, we talked about a whole host of topics, including the retail influence within alternatives, the future of democratization of venture capital and other alternative assets, and why there might be a larger supply of LPs coming for emerging managers. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Pacific Western Bank, a full-service commercial bank with over $34 billion in assets. The venture banking team at PacWest specializes in financial products and services for both startups and the venture and private equity funds that back them. I've worked with many of their team members over the last two decades, and I can attest to their commitment to bringing a high-touch and personalized experience for every startup and fund manager client they have. So whether you're a founder or a fund manager at any stage of development and you want to find out more, Check them out at www.packwest.com. Hey, Michael, it's great to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samir. It's great to be here. All right. So we're going to start out with your bio and how you got into investing. And and please don't leave out the good parts like being a semi-pro soccer player. All right. I, w- I won't leave those out. Those are th- those are days that are, are long gone. I still I still love the game for sure. And uh, actually, the alt space in many ways has been a way to get back into the game in a sense with companies like So Rare or Alt, which... Um, I think are really exciting. And, and as a sports fan myself and somebody who played a great, a great way to kind of reconnect with the game in a sense, um, in a slightly different way online, uh, but also in a meaningful way too. I'll start with, with, with the bio from the early days. So grew up outside of DC, uh, in a pretty entrepreneurial family. Uh, my mom was actually a developer in the eighties and she met my dad, uh, GE. And, uh, he was, he ended up being in technology, uh, pretty early in the eighties and nineties. Uh, so kind of saw the whole world, of the internet up close, uh, and, and was kind of exposed to it early, but I was, to be honest, pretty focused on playing soccer. Uh, so I, <laughs> I played soccer, uh, throughout my, my high school career, tried to go play over in the UK, uh, with a semi-pro team uh, after having two hip surgeries, actually. Uh, And then during that year, kind of got thinking about what are the other things I could be doing in addition to just playing soccer. And I had read this book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World about a guy named John Wood who left Microsoft in the 90s, great job, was head of marketing in Asia, and decided to start this international literacy NGO that has since become one of the world-renowned international literacy NGOs. And that experience really, uh, really resonated with me because he was somebody who built a business and then also created social impact. So I actually just read the book and while I was injured was like, hey, John, I emailed him and said, hey, John, what can I do to help? Uh, It turned out they needed somebody in London. So I worked in London uh, in their development team. Uh, That's really where I kind of got the first entree into the world of uh, impact investing and actually family offices, foundations as well, to some extent, because a lot of these groups wanted to work with, um, you know, work with uh, with Room to Read. So uh, that kind of stuck with me as I continued through my career and uh, ended up 
after a year at Middlebury, deciding to go to LSE uh, and, and study international relations and social policy, but also be exposed to the world of finance. So uh, I've actually been in the alt space for, for quite some time, because when I was at LSE, uh, I can't say I knew very much about finance, uh, probably didn't really know what a bank was, but my next door neighbor said I should come to this uh, info session for this conference that he ran. And it turns out that it was the world's largest student conference on hedge funds and private equity. So I went, joined the team, uh, ended up becoming president, actually. Uh, so I had to learn about the world of alts. And this was back in 2009, 2010. And we were literally cold calling speakers like David Rubenstein from Carlisle or Glenn Hutchins from Silver Lake, Lord Stanley Fink from, from Man Group at the time, and trying to get these incredibly successful people in the world of alts to come and speak to students from around the world. So that was really kind of like my unstructured education in the world of private equity and hedge funds. And now I, you know, I was trying to reconcile these two worlds of complete social impact from my time at Room to Read and, and complete pure financial return from talking to all these hedge fund managers and private equity fund managers. And uh, you know, in 2009, 2010, decided to start a company to educate younger investors on impact investing called Next Gen Engage. Uh, it was a time where impact investing was starting to rise a little bit. Um, and, and I think younger investors really care about things uh, that combine profit and purpose. And we'll get to this a little bit when it comes to things like passion investing in the alt space. And I think this is a really important piece of it. But the, the kernels of that really started in 2009, 2010, and then got a call from a from a solar finance business, because uh, I spent a lot of my time thinking about social plus finance, so how marketplaces could disrupt traditional financial institutions cutting out the middlemen. And one of those companies called me up, and it was Mosaic. They just raised their Series A. Uh, they were a lending club for solar, effectively. So crowdfunding solar projects in, in, in the kind of commercial solar space from individuals, $25 minimum, had a California lender's license. So uh, 24, uh, I became the first head of sales trying to get, you know, individual investors, impact investors, family offices, foundations, many of whom were interested in impact investing uh, to invest into the solar space. And, you know, we went through our ups and downs. The business is actually doing great now and credit to the, the team and founders who've been mission driven this whole time about just what they can do to put as many solar panels on rooftops in the US, but have done about seven and a half billion of home solar loan originations, uh, raised about 300 million bucks of equity from Warburg Pincus. And that was really my first operating experience in an alts platform where we were trying to, to some extent kind of create a new asset class in a sense solar was relatively new there wasn't a lot of data and history of being able to underwrite kind of commercial solar projects particularly from a retail investor perspective so we kind of had to really carve out a reason for why investors should invest into solar space and where it should go in their portfolio so that was really helpful now as we think about the evolution of the alt space in terms of how these platforms can think about educating investors um, and then got a call from a former goldman partner who i'd known who was thinking about joining this company called iCapital Network in New York. It's a company that just spun out of Credit Suisse uh, and their private funds group, which is their placement agent business. And uh, he was thinking about joining iCapital uh, because he saw this opportunity to kind of combine the world of crowdfunding with the world of alternative investment funds wanting to access the retail investment channels. So uh, he asked me what I thought. Uh, I said, this kind of combines some really interesting features of democratization of access to an asset class, private equity and hedge funds, that has historically been 
the domain of the institution. And then you have the kind of retail investor channel. So individual investors, family offices, RIAs, who want access to these funds, but can't have that access. So uh, I was like, yeah, this this sounds like a, a, a really compelling business to join. So he said, hey, if, if you if, if, if you want to join, come and, come and help build the sales team. So joined as an early employee at iCapital, I believe I was number eight. Uh, and help build the sales team with two other guys as we grew this platform. So stepping back for a moment and going back to those early days of Mosaic and iCapital and looking back at that time, at least from my perspective, it was really early days in alternatives and most people were constructing their portfolios fairly traditionally in terms of 60% in traditional public equities and maybe 40% in fixed income products, which were mainly comprised of munis and treasuries and things like that. And you took the plunge and said, there is going to be a secular trend around people changing that 60-40 split to putting more money into alternatives. At the time, of course, that was mainly institutionals that were doing that. What did you see that gave you comfort that there was a real opportunity? I think that at that time, there was still a lot of uncertainty in the alt space in the context of online investment platforms having enough trust to not be the platforms of last resort, right? Because I think the the default opinion would have been these these platforms are the places that funds or companies go when they can't raise money from anybody else. And I think we we faced a little bit of that early on at places like Mosaic and iCapital. That has since changed, and I think we've now crossed the chasm where it be, it's it's totally acceptable to raise money on online platforms. In fact, it can be a good thing because it can be a higher resolution fundraise for companies on platforms like Republic or funds on platforms like iCapital from totally new channels of investors that may be helpful to them in different ways. So I think I think it's actually been a pretty interesting evolution of the alt space over time. But you know, it, it was it was not easy. I mean I think there was a lot of investor education that had to happen. Now, I think you were starting to see slightly lower interest rates, so people were starting to shift into alts more. Uh, you certainly had you know, family office interest in a lot of these platforms because family offices did want access to alts, and that's something historically they've, they've had for a long period of time, but maybe not through online investment platforms. So I think th- there was that was kind of the beginning of people saying, okay, yes, I can invest into these platforms. I think the RIA or wealth management channel has been a little bit slower to develop, but one that's incredibly important as we think about the evolution of the alt space, because two things. One is clients want and probably should have access, particularly high net worth clients, should have access to alts. To your point about the 60-40 portfolio, I think that's dead. People should have some exposure to alts because that's where they can generate higher levels of returns. Certainly, obviously, risk and illiquidity are are features that have to deal with. But if you're getting access to high quality product, you should have the ability to put alts in your portfolio. Now, I think the the RIA space, uh, that was a little bit driven by clients, right? So you had younger clients who wanted access to different types of products. It could have been impact investing products. It could have been investing into startups and technology companies that many of these younger investors and next gens are seeing. They use Uber, they use Instacart, they use DoorDash. So they're often demanding their wealth wealth advisors say, hey, how do I get access to this? I have the money. How do I do this? And it's a way for the advisors to actually talk to and connect with the next generation. Because I think importantly, one thing that advisors realize, particularly if they're older, kind of 55, 65 range, 
they have to find ways to connect with the next generation because 60 plus percent of the time that wealth transfers from one generation to the next, advisors lose that next generation client because they're often not connecting with that younger client. So I think that's been a big driver for getting the wealth manager interested in the alt space and they know they have to, particularly if they go independent. So that's been the other big trend is these advisors breaking away from the wirehouses, so wirehouses being like UBS, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, which take a bigger cut of the advisor's management fee for managing these assets, but they get the benefits of this big banking platform and all that kind of stuff. But there's been a shift towards advisors going independent because they wanna own more of their business, but then they need access to products. So I think these platforms have served a really important function in giving these advisors access to products so they can retain clients and attract new clients. Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. And I and I would agree with you 100% that the 60-40 model is dead. In fact, if you look at what's happened, I think it's morphed into 50-30-20 or even 40-30-30 in certain cases. And you look at institutions, right? So institutions like Yale, over 50% of their asset allocation is into alts. And they performed well. Venture capital is 22%. Now, some of that's because they get into the best firms. They get into the Sequoias and the Excels. But we've also seen a world where venture has completely fragmented and the return profiles of some of the top venture funds aren't just the Sequoias and Excels, but it's a lot of these emerging managers. What I have seen, though, is despite the fact that there are more people demanding access to venture assets, startup companies and venture funds, you mentioned the RIA channel, the independent wealth advisors. A lot of the, the fund managers I talk to say, you know, it's really hard to penetrate and get in front of those consistently. And it means that I have to meet 20 people. I have to do a lot of education. Has there been a shift in those type of wealth advisors because their clients are getting younger and younger in a digital world? Are they also demanding these type of assets? And as a fund manager, what should they be thinking about in terms of navigating those rocky waters? On the venture side, I, I firmly believe that Venture funds, whether they're big brand names or smaller emerging managers, should absolutely target the high net worth channel. That could be family offices, that could be individuals, that could be RIAs. Now, I also recognize that there's a lot of challenges with doing that. What I will say, though, is that these, these investors, they want access to this asset class, and they want to be able to invest into these funds. So the question then becomes, how do you discover them, right? I think that's where one is, if you're on the LP side, you wanna be able to get into the best managers. That would be ideal, but again, you have the access question with the brand names like Axel, Benchmark, Sequoia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and those managers are not starving for net new LPs. They can close their funds very quickly. Now, I would argue even with them, it might be worth carving out a portion of their of their LP base for the high net worth channel because over time those could become multi-fund LPs. I mean, the there's more accredited investors that are being created every day in the US, in large part due to liquidity from, from technology companies. And then you have the independent wealth management channel is larger than the private bank channel. So traditionally and historically, private equity funds and even larger venture funds have tended to raise money from private banks, right? So they'll go to the wirehouses and they'll say, hey, I want you to raise $500 million from your high net worth channel 
to your, your advisors, you'll call up your clients, you'll say, hey, you should put 500,000 or a million bucks through this feeder fund structure that we've created for you into these, you know, into our fund. And that's certainly a great way to do things. I mean, the fund, the funds of the world like Blackstone and Carlisle, et cetera, they can raise hundreds of millions of dollars in a matter of hours often uh, on these platforms. So I understand why the larger private equity funds have tended to go to the, the banks and wirehouses. But now you have a shift where the independent wealth channel is now larger in terms of AUM than the, 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 the wirehouse or private banking channel. So I think it, it makes sense for the venture community to start thinking about building those relationships with the high net worth community. Maybe it's indirectly through platforms, whether it's the iCapitals of the world, the Allocates of the world, because that's the way in which they're gonna efficiently meet LPs and discover the right LPs. Because to your point, I think one of the challenges that the venture funds face is how, how to go through the diligence process with many of these LPs, right? Family offices, RIAs tend to be more idiosyncratic in their diligence than an institution would be. You know exactly what you're getting with CalPERS or Yale or Harvard Endowment. You know how long the sales cycle is going to take. You don't necessarily know that with the family office RIA channel. So I think that's the type of thing where there needs to be platforms that create more efficiencies in that process and also create more efficiencies in discovery, particularly on the emerging manager side. So how does an emerging manager who may have come from the tech world have no connections in the family office or wealth management space, how are they supposed to find this family office in Omaha, Nebraska? You know, where are they going to go to find that, 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 that family office and CIO? There's no list to call. Same with the wealth managers. Yes, there's maybe lists to call, but it's still hard to get in front of these people. So I think that's the big question is, how do you create ways for emerging managers to discover these LPs so that these LPs can then say, you know what? I want access to venture. Here's the type of funds I want. I want exposure to fintech. I want exposure to healthcare. And then you're able to efficiently match them based on what they're interested in. So I think that's kind of the next phase of, of venture from the fundraising perspective. And if you look at the size of the, the amount of private capital out there, it's over 70 trillion. It's growing. And if people do move, let's say 10% of their assets toward alts, you could actually cover the venture market multiple times over in a single year just by the, the private wealth market. Now, there's a lot of unique difficulties, I think, about venture capital. The power law, it's this percep perception that risk is significantly higher than traditional private equity, which is investing in more mature companies. And so while Carlisle or Francisco Partners Golden Gate could easily raise capital on these platforms or by going directly, you know, an emerging manager that's on a fund one or fund two that's investing at the earliest stage, doesn't have a name brand, doesn't have a long track record, oftentimes has to sell a dream. And it's more of a promise that I'm going to be one of those outlier managers like an initialized or a canine ventures or a lowercase. But it's also understanding the LP because you're right, it is very idiosyncratic. I mean, there's this old adage, if you met one family office, you've met one. But are there common commonalities in terms of the pain points those individuals have? What did you find at iCapital? What prevented these people from investing? Was it manager selection? Was it access? Was it the large check sizes that fund managers needed? Or was there something else thematically that really made it difficult for that capital allocation and formation market to be as efficient as it should be? 
It's a great question. I think it varies by group. So when I'll split up family offices in the wealth channel. So the family office side, I think, actually tends to want the less established managers in many cases, if they can't, particularly if they can't get into the Sequoias, Axels, benchmarks, et cetera. But they also tend to like smaller managers because they like different and they like they like funds that they can kind of build with. Many family offices were operating business, the, the founder created an operating business to start. So they have operating DNA and they like backing people who are building businesses and they want to be able to build with them. They also want to be able to access co-investments. And I think that's that's not just limited to family offices. That's also, you know, the domain of fund of funds and why many fund of funds have been incredibly successful is they get to tag along with co-investments over time as, as these fund managers can't really size up themselves. So I think, you know, family office community actually tends to want smaller, more interesting managers if they can find them. Now, I think that's where the discovery piece comes in. I mean, how would they have found Chris at lowercase early on? How would they have found Alexis and Gary at initialized early on unless they were in the right network? So that's where I think a platform comes in where it can be helpful, particularly if a manager doesn't come from kind of an established brand name. Another kind of emerging manager launch that was incredibly successful was Goodwater's Fund One, right? And Chiwa came from Kleiner, Eric came from Maverick. So they were, you know, at bigger established platforms. They had great networks, relationships, credentials. They, you know, they still had to raise the first fund, which wasn't wasn't easy. And then I, I saw them do it early on and, and incredibly impressed with what they've built. But they had that brand, whereas many emerging managers that we're seeing now are coming from various backgrounds, which, by the way, I think is great. But it also means how do they actually get that stamp of approval from investors who may not be as familiar with them or the, or the lack of a brand name that they were associated with. So I think that's kind of on the family office side, some of the things that are, are interesting. I mean, I will say like the family offices that, that I talked to certainly at iCapital would have loved to have kind of emerging managers and kind of smaller funds, because as we both know, smaller funds can certainly outperform. It takes less to outperform on a 10 or $50 million fund than it does even on a hundred, certainly $500 billion fund. So those can be different return profiles based on ownership levels, things like that. So if you can find the right emerging managers, by all means, absolutely, it's great. On the wealth advisor side, I think it's actually a different problem, which is wealth advisors, they have a different mandate than many family offices, which is wealth preservation. So in the domain of wealth preservation, they care more about preserving a client's wealth rather than trying to juice the returns a little bit more. And quite frankly, they'd rather not get fired for investing in the wrong thing and take the safer option. So I think that's where it'll be a really interesting question with the RIA or wealth management community, how they think about accessing emerging managers in particular, because I, I believe, as, as you probably do as well, that these are funds that can be great for them to invest into. And let, let's remember, Goodwater was an emerging manager. Ribbit was an emerging manager. Felicis was an emerging manager. Initialized was. QED was. Right. Those are all brand name funds in today's world. And that's only eight, nine years later. So if you invest in those funds from the early days, great. You're going to get into fund one, but you're also going to get into fund two, three, four. If you don't get into fund one, you may not get into fund two, three, or four. So I think that's the challenge that the wealth management community has to grapple with is 
I'm a little reticent to diligence and and maybe even know how to diligence a first-time manager, and I'm a little afraid to put some money into something that's slightly more risky than a bigger brand name. But if I don't do it, then I may not get into the next funds, and I may lose out on great opportunities for my clients. So I think that's the, that, that's the challenge that these emerging managers and the LPs will face. And I think hopefully, you know, platforms like Allocate can fix that, which is why I'm so excited about what you're building. You're bringing up a really interesting point in that I, I have worked with a lot of wealth advisors. And typically speaking, they are going to incline in buying IBM and in venture, that means buying, if you can, DXLs and Sequoias and maybe even some of the other managers that have legacy and not taking a plunge with uh, emerging managers. The conundrum, of course, is that as a lot of those funds get into a fund two, fund three, fund four, they're usually now exclusive only to either people that were there from day one or people that can write large enough checks and act as multi-fund generational LPs and that usually is the institutions versus the uh, traditional individual or even family office in many cases. You know, the point that a lot of venture funds make is that institutional money is superior because it tends to be larger, it tends to be multi-fund, it tends to be predictable. Whereas on the individual side, the knock has been, if I go after retail investors, it's highly inefficient, it's highly opaque, and it's quite cyclical. Do you think that has changed in any way as people have moved further into alternatives? And what do you see the impact in the future if things like interest rates do rise? Do people then retreat from alternatives and go back to traditional invest investing? Or do you think that there's a real long-term trend toward alternatives and that even if people do pull out during a downturn, there are going to be other people that pick up that slack? Certainly, I think... VCs should be right to be reticent to work with the retail investor community because in many respects, unlike institutions, they may not be able to allocate to multiple funds, right? Institutions, fund of funds, large endowments, pension plans, they think long-term and they are often planning for multiple funds when they allocate to a fund one. They're also thinking about fund two, three. They have that kind of capital set aside and that schedule of how they plan to invest and how they plan to match their allocations with their distributions. Some family offices are certainly sophisticated enough to do that, as are some RIAs, but it's also more difficult for them, and some of them may not be as sophisticated, certainly individuals as well. So I think that the VC community, or, or really kind of fund managers writ large, could be private equity as well, I, I think they, sh they are right to be reticent about the engaging the retail community. Now, I will say this. I think that there are mechanisms that are being created particularly on some of these online investment platforms with secondary market liquidity that are enabling individual investors or wealth managers to feel comfortable allocating to these funds, knowing that they can get more liquidity. Now, I think it's important to note that often these illiquid holdings are not the holdings that you want to sell because those can be the returns that compound over time, right? If you can, if you're at 3x and then you can do another 2x turn, that goes from 3 to 6x, right? That's a big material difference. And then that if they do another 2x turn on the next valuation 
as as kind of raising a growth round, you're doing you're doing six to twelve x. Like those are material returns that you don't want to you don't want to shed unless you absolutely have to. Now I know during the last financial crisis, people would often have to sell their liquid assets, which I think creates actually interesting secondary market opportunities. At, at iCapital, we had some secondaries funds on our platform for that very reason. I think it was you know kind of 2014-15 timeframe secondaries funds doing incredibly well, right? Because they were being able to get, they were able to invest into fund portfolios at discounts or, or particular companies within a portfolio at discounts because people needed liquidity. So I, I think that that's a, a trend that's going to continue to happen with many of these online platforms. And I think many of these platforms either have built secondary market trading platforms or are thinking about it because they know that the retail investor community thinks about liquidity more than an institutional investor might. So I think hopefully that can solve some of the problems. But look, I, I absolutely agree that low interest rates has contributed to an interest in alts. Everybody needs to search for yield. And they've been doing so over the past two, three years in the last kind of year and a half or so really kind of alts have taken hold or as we've, we've talked about gone mainstream. So I think interest rates rising could certainly change a little bit of that. But I also think that the rise of alts is here to stay. And it's not just due to the fact that, you know, people are interested in alts or the interest kind of irrespective of the interest rate movement. I think that there's more to investing in alts than meets the eye. And this is where it's not just kind of investing in venture funds, although I think that's a piece of it, but it's investing into all sorts of alternative assets, things like collectibles, sports cards, art, NFTs. Passion and interest-based investing is a huge driver of a move towards alt. And that's not you know, I think I think that's here to stay because you have younger investors in particular have a very different view of what they want to invest into. They want to participate in these markets and they want to invest in things that have some level of cultural significance. And that I think is different. That I think is here to stay. And I actually want to double click on that a little bit because you, you have seen the world change. You, you brought this up earlier. Generational wealth transfer is happening. In fact, the, the numbers that I've seen is that over 30 trillion in wealth will be transferred over the next couple decades. And the people that it's being transferred to are people that grew up in a digital world, grew up around social. And we've seen investing not only about passions, but around movements. And you can look at no further than things like this, the meme stocks or the meme coins. And it's it's hard to debate that this isn't real and that there's a way of people investing that is around this herd mentality. That's always been the case, but it's different now. It's amplified in different ways. And so as you look at the alt world going, and I think we're going to see a whole new set of alt asset categories that are, whether it's a pipe or an alt with sports trading cards, NFTs, Republic is doing a great job, obviously, in offering all type of products to both accredited and non-accredited investors. But thematically, what are you seeing with the type of investing people are doing that might be different from the traditional, I'm looking to diversify risk, I'm looking to get outsized yields. You know, you brought up passion. Is there anything else thematic about this next generation of investor? It's a great question. And first of all, thank you for mentioning three companies that we've invested in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yes, I, I think, look, passion, I think, is a big driver of all of this, right? So people want to invest into things that they care about and understand. I think that's a feature of the next generation. I think things like sports cards, there's also cultural significance with something like that. That's something that people really can get behind, understand. I think even in the next generation, that can be a tool for financial literacy 
Imagine if you could teach kids how to invest, whether it's in the stock market or in alternative assets through things like sports cards. I mean, people may pay more attention than they would if it was just a boring, you know, a boring kind of, you know, class on on finance. Um, so you may get more engaging, kind of an engaged audience as a result of some of these types of investments. Now, I, I think when it comes to the alt space. I think you still have to diversify your portfolio. I wrote a piece on this recently on the Alco's mainstream blog called, you know, 6440 Portfolios Dead. But I wrote this, I drew, uh, certainly never going to become uh, an, an artist uh, for that. But I drew what looks somewhat like a pie. Uh, and I highlighted a bunch of different aspects in the alt space. I think particularly younger investors, they're going to want to have diversity of of kind of exposure to the alt space. I think crypto is here to stay. I think NFTs are here to stay. And again, they're things that people care about and are interested in. And then I think, you know, people should have access to startups. They should have access to funds. I, I think this is where this is where I think people are going to decide on their own a little bit in a more self-directed way what they might be interested in. And they may have slightly different portfolio allocations as a result. I think managed assets, so by the wealth advisor community, will probably have a little more structure to it and probably have less of the kind of passion assets, but should still have things like venture funds, startups, maybe even more alternative assets. I mean, sports cards have outperformed the S&P from 20, uh, 2008 to 2020, and it's uncorrelated asset class. Same with wine as an asset class, right? So VinoVest has, has you know, put out some data that's shown that the, their VinoVest 100 index has outperformed the S&P by a significant amount, and that's also uncorrelated. So I think, you know, th th there are ways to construct an alt portfolio that takes into account risk, that takes into account illiquidity or liquidity. Some of these assets may be more liquid uh, than others and takes into account correlation to more traditional markets because at the end of the day, startups, which is an equity investment, just happens to be private equity, venture funds or private equity, that's also an equity investment, that is correlated to public equities. So, you know, Crypto may not be as correlated. Sports cards may not be as correlated. Wine investing, farmland investing may not be as correlated. So I think people are going to just construct a new portfolio of all sorts of alts based on kind of their risk tolerance, what they understand, what they like. And I think that's going to be a really big feature of, of, of the alt space going forward. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, and I've, I've spent a lot of time actually investing my own capital in things that are alts and tracking the folks like Vino Vest and Alt. And I do think we're at the early stages of a lot of this. Now, we, we will see, like, we'll see what happens during a market disruption, we'll see what happens to the retail capital. But I think when that does happen, it's going to be more of a bump in the road versus a long term divergence away from investing in alternative assets. So this is a venture podcast. I like your comments around having managers think about the retail channel to raise capital beyond just a small fund one and, and really long term. But you also invest, right? So you're investing out of Broadhaven, you're focusing on fintech. And you've been on kind of both sides of the table, right? You've been on the operator side as a consumer of professional capital, now you're deploying capital. And one of the things that always comes up with investors and entrepreneurs is what type of value do investors provide? And a lot of that goes to, are you providing what you say you're going to provide? Is there something differentiated? And are entrepreneurs going to want to take your money for a particular reason? You brought up this analogy, I think, in the past of good VCs are like sixth men in basketball, right? So they're not 
part of the starting five, but they come off the bench when the coach tells them to come in and they play whatever role is needed. Tell us what that means for Broadhaven and how you think about value add. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and it's really a, a homage to my favorite basketball player who was the sixth man uh, winning the championship for the Golden State Warriors multiple times and a venture investor himself, actually, Andre Iguodala, uh, where I, I think that like what he did in the NBA Finals and was uh, MVP of one of the Finals games where they, they won, actually, he came off the bench and provided such a critical spark to the team and did things, whether it might not have been just scoring, it might have been blocks, steals, playing defense. Those are all the types of things that kind of glue the team together. And that's where I hope as an investor, you're never going to be day to day. You're never going to be working as hard as the founding team. But if you can help out at critical moments, I think that ends up being leverage for the founders and really important for them in terms of, especially early on, getting that first customer that first enterprise customer, right? That can provide such big validation, helping them raise their next round, talking to them on a Friday night at two in the morning if they have a question about like, what do I do like with my board or what's happening? What, 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 how do I handle this? So I think it really means just kind of being that person who can come off the bench when they need, when they need help. And it means really kind of being part of the team, right? I mean, when Greg, my partner, and I decided to start Broadhaven, we really sat down and thought about, okay, how do we, want to work with founders. Greg was a successful founder and executive himself. He built a business that was sold for a few billion dollars. He then built Broadhaven Capital Partners, which is a market-leading fintech investment bank, has about 75 people, has done over 65 billion of M&A transaction volume. That's a really successful business in its own right. So when we decided to start this business, you know, I came from the operating background as well with Mosaic and iCapital. And, you know, I was never a founder of those businesses, but I always felt that like, heck, if the founders are going to be working that hard, I should be working as hard as them too. Right. So I think that's the ethos that we've wanted to bring to Broadhaven Ventures was, look, the part we love the most is helping companies succeed because we've been on the operating side and that's where we get our excitement, joy, and energy from. Doesn't mean we can't and don't have to focus on the, you know, finding and picking aspects of venture and, and winning to some extent. I mean, I think those are three really important things. If you don't find and pick the right companies, you're never going to be in the best deals anyways. And that's an important piece for returning capital for your investors. But I think for us, you know, we love the early stage of company building. And we actually have the experience of building and scaling companies where we can literally help from idea to IPO. Greg just took one of our companies public where we were one of the first seed investors. Uh, so we can literally help from beginning to endpoint and every step along the way. And that's the part that we enjoy the most. So that's where I think, you know, kind of being the sixth man is we're here to just come off the bench when you need us and we'll help you as a result. It's a great way to think about it. I've been through so many conversations with VCs and both on where as a consumer of VC now with, with Allocate and then prior to that, working with some VCs. And if you look at every deck, it talks about the value add framework that they will provide entrepreneurs, but a lot of them struggle to do that consistently. And if you go on things like Twitter, you know, the how can I be helpful is, is something that everyone talks about and laughs about. But how do you actually execute on that and go away from the how can I be helpful to knowing what role you're going to be playing and balancing between being too intrusive and too laissez-faire. Because, you know, like even Vinod Kosla said, hey, 90% of the, the VCs out there actually destroy value. Forgetting about whether you agree with that or not, how do you think about that balance? The first step is always saying, let me know how I can be helpful. 
when we decided to build Broadhaven, we're, we're only four years old. We're still an emerging manager and figuring this out ourselves. But when we thought about okay, how can we actually be helpful? It really came about from the perspective of, okay, what are the areas in which we can add value in ways that maybe other VCs can't? And I think that came from, one, the idea from being able to help from idea to IPO. Because we have this broader banking platform, we can help companies connect to financial services institutions. We can help them go IPO. We can help them raise you know, raise debt capital or, um, you know, or credit facilities. We've done that in a number of cases. We helped Moneyline do that. We helped Credit Husto do that. Those are big value drivers for business. And that's not just that kind of seed stage where we mainly invest. We're mainly seed series A investors and we'll lead seed rounds. We've led six of our 30 investments and we'll follow in the remainder. But we've also invested at later stages in part because we have more flexible capital. It's all principal capital from all the partners at the bank. And I think that's the other piece of it too. I mean, we've, we've made a conscious decision to be all principal capital because that means we can spend less time fundraising and more time actually helping companies, also finding and picking companies. But really that 30, 40% of the time that could go to LPs, we can spend that time really helping our companies and being a sounding board to founders, sitting on boards as a seed investor as well. I sit on, I sit on five boards and, you know, usually seed funds are not able to do that. So I think those are some areas where we felt, okay, we can really be helpful. But then when we think about it, you know, like, yes, I think the table stakes are you have to be able to help with customer development. You have to be able to help with strategy. You have to be able to help with hiring. Those are all things we we try to do and help. And I think that's where things like diverse networks really helped. I mean, I've taken a pretty non-traditional path. I mean, I started in impact investing, like you said. I I, I helped out um, one of the global macro hedge fund advisors uh, when I was in college called, called uh, it was Drobny Capital, it's now Clock Tower. Um, you know, I spent time in the wealth management world, spent time in the family office world, lived in London for five years. You know, Greg has a massive network. So we're able to help companies in so many different ways because of the network we have and able to kind of pull these people in when we need them to help our companies at critical moments in the life cycle of them building their business. So I think that's the other piece where kind of able to help in ways that maybe maybe others can't. And then final thing is, you know, we have expertise in financial services. I mean, I, I will say Greg is absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the guy, has, I've, I've, never, I've never seen him meet a problem that he hasn't had a solution to. So, you know, that really helps. And he understands financial services inside and out. I think that's from being exposed to large financial institutions and having to deal with many of the biggest financial institutions and the questions they're facing, being an advisor to them, the problems that they have. And that helps us, you know, give hopefully the right advice to financial services companies, help them navigate complex regulatory environments, complex incumbent landscapes. So I think that's another big piece of it too. There's other great funds who do that as well, but I think that's something that particularly in financial services, you really need to be able to do that if you want to help a company figure out how to build their business, what products they should launch, who they should hire, how they get capital, raise equity and debt capital. All those things are super important as they're building their business. Have, have you found a way to do this scalably? Because you know you just mentioned you have 30 companies, you're sitting on five boards, there's this other business, you're helping companies well beyond the seed in Series A, but as companies continue to scale, as an emerging manager out there, like what are things that you've done, at least that have been successful in terms of scaling that type of value beyond just like a small group of companies at a time. We've had to think about this a lot, especially given that we've 
sat on boards, right? So that, which takes up a lot of time. I think there's been a few things that we've done, which again, I, I don't think are applicable to every emerging manager. So it, this is just our scenario. One is the broader platform that we have at Broadhaven. 75 people on the banking side were able to leverage those resources. So we may be a team of myself and Greg, we co-founded the fund. We have a third partner. We have a few operating partners, but we have this team of 75 people who can help us if and when need be. That is, I think, probably unique to a lot of emerging managers. Um, again, we're lucky in that sense that we have this affiliated business, but I think that also helps us scale ourselves and leverage, you know, leverage our business. I mean, we had people on the advisory side working on, you know, helping our companies create decks or helping our companies think about how to raise equity or, or debt financing and credit facilities. So I think that's really helpful. You know, Credit Husto, we help them raise a credit facility. Moneyline, we help them raise a $500 million credit facility and then help them structure a, an off-balance sheet investment vehicle to help them unlock, um, you know, unlock the kind of equity capital in their balance sheet. So things like that where we're leveraging the broader Broadhaven platform. I think the other piece, again, which is maybe not applicable to every every emerging manager, but the fact that we are all principal capital. So if there is one takeaway there, you know, if you can have a sole LP, that can be that can be great and provide an advantage and leverage because again, we can unlock that time that would otherwise be spent fundraising or with LP management, helping our companies and the partners, we have 13 partners in the advisory side of our business. I mean, we have a number of ex-Goldman partners who are senior bankers there, vice chairman of Morgan Stanley's investment bank, vice chairman of Wasserstein Perella's investment bank. I mean, these are all people who are investing into our companies and they are then highly motivated to help out, right? They can tap into their network. So we're able to kind of create these synergies between Broadhaven Ventures and Broadhaven Capital Partners that hopefully just help create value for the companies, most of all. And then, you know, obviously we we end up benefiting from that as well. Yeah, you, you definitely have some real structural advantages in, in being able to do what you do. Michael, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. And most of all, always being a great sounding board for us. Awesome. No, I, I love what you guys are building at, at Allocate. I think it's incredibly important for the evolution of the alt space, particularly when it comes to enabling VC funds and emerging managers in particular to discover the LP community and vice versa. So I think uh, I'm excited to see what you build. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed this episode with Michael. To learn more about him and Broadhaven Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes in the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. Also, remember to sign up at ventureunlocked.substack.com to get updates on every episode as well as my blogs on the world of venture capital.